0: Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Acts 18, starting in verse 18, Acts 18, verse 18. You know, I've got to learn to say, open your Bible or click in your Bible, don't I? I've got to to get up with the times here, Pastor Shaw. So, Acts 18, uh, 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 verse 18. Um, So, some years back in my role as a church administrator, a, a woman came into my office, wanting to make a contribution to the church. And she said, well, obviously, I, I could have put this in the plate. I, I could have given this in the usual way. But, but I was hoping that I could designate this offering for a specific purpose. I said, that's no problem, ma'am. The elders, the session, they've established a certain number of funds to which designated gifts can be given. What were you wanting to give it to? And, and she said, you know, I was hoping that it would go to the missions fund. So far, so good. That's completely appropriate. We had many people who would give to the missions fund of that church. But it's what she tacked on after that that sticks in my memory. For she said, I want to give it to the missions fund so that it'll support gospel work. Now, those of you who know me probably can guess I had a really hard time keeping my tongue at that point. Because what was running through my head was, we do a little bit of gospel work here at the local church. Really? You wanted to go to missions, so it goes to gospel work? But I didn't say any of that. God, in his grace to me and to her in that moment, kept me from saying what I was thinking. And instead I said, thank you, we'll see that it goes to the missions fund. You know, there is an interesting thing that happens in the church. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably witnessed it. Maybe even yourself thought this way. One of the shames that things, one of the good things that came out of the Protestant Reformation, but it's a shame that we're losing this, was the Protestant doctrine, the biblical doctrine, the vocation of work. Not that it was just the priests and the nuns and the missionaries who did God's work. But all who work to honor him, no matter what it is they're doing, please him. What is it said in 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one? whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And out of that came an understanding that, there, that all work, which is done with right motives and right heart and done in faith and done in honor and glory to God, is pleasing to God. And yet... What do we do in the church? We have this tendency to create this uh, 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 st- uh, uh, stratified view of work. In the church, You've down here at the bottom, you've got uh, custodians and, and sound technicians. Most of us forget they even exist. We don't even notice them until something goes wrong. We only note the sound technician or the custodian, you know, when there's feedback in the PA or you can't hear or the garbage isn't emptied. We never bothered to notice or appreciate them any other time. And right above that are going to be, you know, uh, uh, nursery workers. I mean, at least they work with people, sort of. I don't know if children really count as people, but, you know, sort of work with people there. That's a little bit better. Now, above that, you've got your Sunday school teachers and, and the, uh, the, the, the members of the praise ministry and, and, and church secretary. Those people, you know, they do some little more real work of the church. Above that's the, the youth director because, well, you know, he's got to put up with teenagers, so, hey, you know, we got to give him some credit. And pastors are in there. But at the top... At the top of it, we know the people God loves the most are the missionaries, for they do the real gospel work. You know, it's interesting, this passage in front of us is a reminder that Paul actually spent most of his time not on the mission field, that the bulk of his ministry was to established churches the majority of what he did was not evangelism and church planting, but discipleship and church strengthening. And we're going to be reminded this morning that whatever it is that we do in support of the church is important work. Whatever it is we do, whether we are the the preacher or the teacher, the treasurer or the secretary, the deacon and elder, the women's ministry laborers, those who teach our children, those who serve the church by cleaning and taking care of its facility, those who are prayer warriors on behalf of the church, those who give financially, those who may never be seen or noticed, do a gospel work. They do a gospel work Because that is what the local church does, and that's why it was so, Paul spent so much time and so much energy tending to the local church. Here at this local church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice, so that if you want to know what it is you should believe about Jesus Christ and how to live the gospel life for him and how to live it out in the church, then you've got to know God's word. So follow along now as I read, beginning in Acts 18, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At, uh, 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 can, I looked up how to pronounce this word, I forgot already. Uh, can. can, can Kencrea, there we go, Cancrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of uh, uh, Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, let us hear the important work that was done this morning, that we read about this morning, was done by the Apostle Paul, uh, tending to and caring for and strengthening the churches, strengthening the disciples. Let us be encouraged to be uh, uh, men and women, boys and girls who care about your local church and who tend to it and strengthen it. Thank you for all the many who do so. Thank you for all those whom you have provided to be members of your body, that we do grow up together into Jesus Christ, our head. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to look at three aspects of this text. We're going to see, first of all, there in verse 18, uh, that Paul, you know, he's a man of God. The reason he is a missionary at all, the reason he's a minister at all, comes first and foremost because he is a man of God. He is a person who cares about the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and his uh, 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 good news and his gospel. And so we're going to see that Paul is this man of God. We're then going to look at the missionary aspect, that he was a missionary to the lost, and what he does in this passage, and then we're going to see him as a minister, a minister to the church. He's a man of God, He is a missionary to the lost, and he is a minister to the church. And we're going to consider how each of those are things that all of us are called to be in our own way. So there in verse 18, we have this interesting statement about a stop at the barbershop. And then interesting, he, uh, uh, he uh, had cut his hair for he was under a vow. What a strange thing to insert into the text. We don't have a lot of references in the Bible to uh, time spent at nail salons or barber shops or beauty pa- uh, parlors. But, but here we have this. It's interesting to me, I think every picture I've ever seen of the Apostle Paul shows and you know, we don't have a real picture of him, but artists' imaginations always show him bald. But apparently he had some hair, at least of some kind here. He got his hair cut. What's going on there? Well, there's much debate about exactly what this means. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you may be aware of what was called a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow, uh, among other things, included never cutting your hair, never shaving your head or your beard, uh, um, letting it just grow naturally. There's some debate about whether or not that's what's in view here because there seems to be a fair amount of evidence that by this point in history, the the Nazarite vow was limited to being made and fulfilled in Jerusalem, and he's not in Jerusalem. And so apparently it's not a Nazarite vow, at least we don't think so. Not sure what the nature of it is, but but the point is really not the exact nature of the vow. The point is not that you and I should or should not grow out our hair, but rather the the real issue here is the promise, the vow that the Apostle Paul made to God. And we must understand this is not a foxhole vow. You know how those go, right? You've heard the stories, you know, somebody's under duress, they're, they're in war, they're in that foxhole, and the bombs are exploding all around them, and the bullets are sailing over their head, and they say, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I will fill in the blank. I'll become a, a missionary, I'll become a pastor, I will give up drinking, I'll do whatever you want. And of course, too often, those vows are never honored. They're never kept. They're not really meant They're not trusting in a God who is sovereign and in control, but rather bartering with a God who is at our beck and call. And they don't have a right view. That is not what is in view here. Paul is not coming out of a situation of duress where he bartered with God and made some deal. In fact, the situation in Corinth, where he's been for the last year and a half, at least a year and a half, has been actually one of the calmer in his ministry. In fact, we saw last week how the Lord promised to protect him from harm in Corinth. So this is not what's going on here. But rather, what we see is that under, with consideration, with intent, with careful purpose, Paul has entered into some sort of vow to God. It's interesting, we do take a handful of vows in our life, our lives. I've taken four that I can remember, things that would be rightly called vows. Each of them, interestingly enough, was in the context of the church. I became a member of the church, a communing member once upon a time, and I took a vow of membership, even as we saw that taken here last week. I entered into marriage in the church, and I took a vow. I then became an elder in the church church. And took another vow. And eventually the Lord moved me into full-time ministry and I took yet another vow. There are vows that we take as a part of our life. And Paul has taken one such vow. It's interesting what the scriptures have to say about that. Nine different times, nine different uh, psalms. Specifically, talk about keeping our vows before the Lord. In Psalm 76, David says this Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Vows are not to be entered into lightly, they're not to be made a casually. We don't barter with God. We, don't, we, we, we should never, as much as you might want the Ravens to win the Super Bowl, don't ever sit in front of that television and say, God, if you'll just let the Ravens win, I'll do. That's not appropriate. That's not taking regard for what the psalmist says, for the one who is to be feared. Oh, you can pray for the the Ravens to win, but do not, do not wager with God. Make a deal with God. Try to twist him to do your will. If you enter into a vow before the Lord, it should be a considered vow, a carefully considered vow. The Proverbs say it this way, it is a snare to say rashly. it is holy, Uh, it is sanctified, it is given over for a special purpose, and to reflect only after making vows. Don't make the vow and then reflect. Don't make the vow and then wonder if you should keep it. Wonder first if you can keep it before making it. Uh, in Psalm 15, David says this Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And part of the answer includes he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Vows are a big deal. How did Jesus instruct in Matthew 5? He says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Let it be that serious, that everything. You say you will keep and do. And of course, James, the half-brother of Jesus, sums it up this way, um, saying that let your yes be yes and your no be no. Paul has entered into some kind of vow, whether it's a vow related to his Christian service, whether it's a vow that's connected to something we don't know about in his personal life. Whatever it is, he kept it. He honored it. He fulfilled it. And here we have the sign of its completion with the shaving of his hair. It's interesting that Luke would include this. Of all the things that Luke leaves out, it's interesting that this is here. And yet as the text continues to unfold, I think we're going to see why Luke chooses to include this. You know, you and I are not good at being vow keepers. We're not good at letting our yes be yes and our no be no. But it's wonderful to remember, to reflect on, to think about why this is such a big deal in the life of the Apostle Paul. Because he, along with us, loved and served, we love present tense and serve present tense, a God who is the ultimate vow keeper. Have you ever thought about the things that God cannot do? In fact, in Sunday school class today, we're going to talk about some of them. The things that God cannot cannot do. And one of those is he cannot break his word. He cannot lie. He cannot go back on a vow or a covenant or an oath. We do not need to wonder or worry if the day comes that we stand before the judgment seat that God is going to say, well, you didn't get the memo. I changed the plan of salvation. Yes, I had once said it was by grace through faith and you had been hoping in Jesus Christ, but... I decided that you also had to do this and this and this and this. That's not going to happen to us because we have a God who keeps his vows perfectly, fully, every time. That is one of the reasons Paul wanted to be a vow keeper, was to reflect and to honor the God he loved and served stick a pin in that idea of him keeping this vow, because like I said, we're going to come back to it in a moment, and look at the next set of verses, 19 through 21, where we see Paul being a missionary to the lost, a missionary to the lost. So he goes to Ephesus, we're told, Ephesus was an important city in Asia Minor back then, uh, home of the, uh, uh, the temple to uh, Artemis, uh, one of the seven, anci- uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. You've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world? One of them was here in Ephesus. It was an important city back then. Far less so today, but a big deal back then. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Ephesus when we get uh, back to, uh, uh, come back to Ephesus in a few weeks here. But for right now, let's just say it was a really important city. And Paul stops there only briefly on this occasion. And he enters into the synagogue. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. We see this return to his practice of going to those who were ostensibly waiting for the Messiah, who said with their lips, we're waiting for the Messiah. And he would go to them and say, your wait is over. The Messiah has come. And they rightfully questioned that. They weren't going to be tricked into some false Messiah. It's easy to lose sight of this today. But back then, There were a whole lot of messiahs. We don't always see it or know it. Um, I had one of my seminary profs actually wrote and published a book. Um, I had to use it because I had to in seminary. It's not one I'm going to recommend you necessarily read, but it's a great resource for study. He attempted to do a comprehensive list of all of the messianic claims in the first century, and there were a lot of them. So it was appropriate to be skeptical that some carpenter out of Nazareth would claim to be the Messiah, but Paul reasoned with them. We see in other places he reasoned with them from the Scripture and explained to them why this one, his claim is true and is right. Paul is concerned about the lost. He's concerned about those who do not know Jesus Christ, and he wants to tell them, he wants to explain to them, he cares about those headed to hell. And again, it flows out of who his Savior is. He sees in them himself. I was once one of them, and God saved me. I want him to do the same for them. He pro- they ask him to stay. He says, I can't. But he does say an important little comment there. He says, I will return to you if God wills, if God allows. And I think what we're seeing here, part of the reason Luke chooses to include this comment about the vow, is that we're seeing here when Paul makes this commitment, it is a real commitment for him. And sure enough, just a little few verses down here in the, in, the chap, in the book of Acts, we're going to see that he does, in fact, return to Ephesus. He does come back and eventually spends three years in the city of Ephesus ministering to them. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you, and then never pray for them. He doesn't say, yes, I'll come back, and then never come back. He doesn't say, I will tweak you tomorrow, and then not follow through part of his ministry, part of his uh, uh, commitment to the Lord is a commitment to do the things that he says he will do so long as God allows it. We see him follow up and come back. So we see him, he's a man of God, he's committed to God, he's going to honor his vow to God. We see him committed to the lost, he is a missionary. But, what do we notice the next thing, the transition He's a minister of and to the church. Verse 22, I said he's a servant of the church. Look at verse 22. This verse is not obvious at first glance what's going on here, but a careful reading will reveal to us some important things. When he had landed at Caesarea. Now, stop right there. Caesarea is a port on the Mediterranean coast of Palestine. It is... Uh, uh, not up in Asia Minor, where he's been spending the last few weeks in Ephesus. It's not over in Greece, where he's been spending most of the last two years. It is on the, uh, the coast of Palestine, of modern-day Israel. It is thus an appropriate landing place for what important city? We'll stick that in the back of our head. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up. And greeted the church. And there's our problem. It just says the church. It doesn't tell us which church. It doesn't say First Baptist of Tyre, you know, 10th Pres of Jerusalem. We don't know which church this is. It just says the church. He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. If you are familiar with the scripture, if you know your Bible, that phraseology may have some meaning to you. In the scripture, the phrase went up is exclusively used with reference to one and only one city. It is Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem. Again, we tend to think of up as north because we look at maps, and we hold our maps with north at the top, and so we tend to think of up as north. But in the ancient world, where they didn't have drones and spacecraft to be able to project, look at the earth from that angle, rather up for them was up, away from sea level. And Jerusalem was up. It sat on mountaintops. And so you went up to Jerusalem, from anywhere around Jerusalem, no matter where you were relative to Jerusalem, north, south, east, or west, your path into Jerusalem was an upward path. You went down out of Jerusalem. What we see here is Paul reporting back to the mother church. Paul going home to the founding church. We've seen this before. Back at the... Uh, the uh, At the end of Acts 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas report back to the church in Antioch, the church that had sent them out on the first missionary journey. At the conclusion of the first missionary journey, they go back to Antioch and report back what had happened. And now we see Paul reporting back to the mother church in Jerusalem. Paul the apostle saw himself as accountable to the church. Yes, he was an apostle in the church, Yes, he was a leader of the church, but he was under the church and accountable to it. We enter in our society a, a, a strange time. Elections are just a, a little less than a month away. What a bizarre system to think about. That we would have control over the, 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 our government. That we would have control over our leaders and then have to turn right around and be subordinate them And our leaders, in turn, are over us and yet under us. It is a strange relationship. But we see that modeled here in the church. That the apostle was accountable to the church. You and I are accountable to the church. Though we make it up, though we are the church, yet we are accountable to it. It's a bizarre thing that in my vows as a pastor, in our vows as elders and deacons, that we vow to to serve and lead the church in accord with the word of God, but then we turn right around and vow to submit to the church, to submit to the brethren. It is modeled on what we see here. Paul was not above the local church. He was not above... uh, being accountable to the people of God. Then what happens in verse 23? After reporting into Jerusalem, he heads back to Antioch. After spending some time there, probably reporting to the sending church in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, you may not be good at remembering these names, but these regions are where this second missionary journey began. Go back to uh, the end of Acts 15. Paul says to Barnabas, hey, I've got a mind to go out and strengthen the churches. I want to go revisit all the churches that we established on our missionary journey. At that point, it wasn't called the first missionary journey because it was the only missionary journey they had taken. I want to go out and revisit all the churches. And of course, they debated the whole issue with John Mark. Did we take them out. They, so they parted ways, and, and, and Barnabas and John Mark went to Cyprus and revisited the churches there. And then Paul goes into Asia Minor, to Galatia and Phrygia, these regions right here. Begins to strengthen those churches, taking with them the decision of the Jerusalem Council as to how Gentiles should be incorporated into the church, taking with them a message of hope and of peace, taking with them encouragement, taking with him instruction in the Word of God to grow these churches. And it was there, you'll recall, that he found Timothy. And Timothy joined this journey. It was there that Luke is added to their number. And at least for a little while, Luke doesn't stay for the whole journey, but for a time, Luke is with them. So this journey had launched, this missionary endeavor. We call it the second missionary journey, but it started and ended not with missions work, but with ministry to the local church, ministry to established churches, ministry to those who had heard the gospel and needed now to know how to grow In the gospel, evangelism and church planting are important, but so is the work of the local church. Your work here at Shore Harvest matters to God. Thank you for being a a Sunday school teacher, for being a, a deacon or an elder, for giving financially, for praying for your church, for running the sound so I don't have to think about it, for running the vacuum cleaner so we don't have to look at it, for taking care of these things, for for being a secretary, a treasurer, a servant of the church, for coming on the work days, for helping with the women's ministry, for just being here to encourage us. You know, one of the young people of the church sent her pastor a letter last week. It was an encouragement. It strengthened this pastor. Those are the ways that we minister, things that we do for one another, for the body of Christ, for the glory of the name of Jesus. Because he saved us, because not in hopes that he will save us, but in response to what he's done for us. We say, I care about his church. I care about his body. I may never go to the mission field. I may never even get on a short-term mission. But I can do what Paul did. I can minister to my local church. I can give. I can pray. I can go. I can encourage. I can send notes. I can help out. I can teach. I can clean. I can whatever your gift set is. When it's done in support of the church, it is pleasing to God. Paul, a missionary and a, a great and spectacular and wonderful missionary, spent most of his time ministering to the local churches, caring for the local churches. We have that same privilege, that same opportunity to be servants of the God who saved us through his body, the church. Let's pray. Lord, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we serve your church. We love your people. And we take our vow here seriously. We ask, Lord, that you would work through us. Though we fail often, though we fall short much, Nevertheless, we see that you bring about your purpose in us. And so we thank you for the church. We thank you for our opportunity to be a part of her. We thank you for the opportunity to serve her. Lord, let us see whatever it is that we do as service to you. Let us recognize, though, that you may not let us, you may not show us all the ways that it is used by you, Let us know that you are working in and through this church and what we do for her. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.